Welcome to the Incredible Huck Podcast. I'm Keith Peterson. Today, we will be profiling a researcher who specializes in things that are all around us, inside us. They can make us sick. They can make us heal. They can even crash your computer. Well, not exactly. If you want to find out what I'm talking about, you'll just have to stay tuned. My name is Marilyn Rusinka, and I'm a professor of virus ecology. So I work in the Center for Infectious Disease Dynamics, which is part of the Huck Institute. Okay, maybe the computer thing was a little misleading, but that's how we talk about viruses. We don't cast them in a very good light. Today, we're going to dive into the good, the bad, the ugly, the head scratching, and the amazing about these microscopic organisms. But first, let's learn a little bit more about our researcher's background. I remember as a little kid, I was very interested in biology, and I I, I think I told my mother I was going to be a biologist when I grew up, and she said, that's not a job. <laughs> well, you proved it wrong. It wasn't very encouraging about it, but yeah, I, so yeah, I used to, um, I guess I wanted to be like a Victorian age naturalist when I was a kid. <laughs> so I've actually never, I don't work, I mean, plants are, um, I don't know that much about plants. Plants are a convenient host for my viruses. Okay. So I study viruses, and they can be in anything. But That's true. I don't okay. like to do, um, I, I don't like working with animals very much. As a kid, I actually used to sit, um, I lived on a farm. I grew up on a farm in Michigan, and I used to sit out in the field with my with a notebook and take um, notes on things like, you know, wildlife and stuff that I saw. I took a course in microbiology in in college, and I had actually thought of going into some kind of the part of the medical field at one point. Thank goodness I saw the light. But um, <laughs> medicine is not science. Anyway, uh, <laughs> um, so I I had I took a course in microbiology, and I met my first virus there, which was a virus that infects bacteria. And I just thought it was so amazing. It was so cool. I mean, they're these really small things. They have very few genes, and yet they can they change everything really have a dramatic impact on their host. So I, uh, I transferred to, the, I was, I started at the uh, Colorado, or sorry, Community College of Denver in, in Denver, Colorado. Mm -hmm. And um, I transferred to the University of Colorado in Boulder the next year and sort of focused on viruses from there on out. So now that we understand Dr. Rusing's background, let's dive into what we're here to talk about. First of all, I think I speak for all of us when I say that viruses are nasty, awful creatures that cause disease and should be avoided at all costs. Most viruses don't cause disease. In fact, it's probably pretty rare for a virus to cause disease, but those are the ones that have been studied. So um, those are the ones we know about. And I happen to have one right now. It's making my voice a little funny. But, um, I think I have one too. Um, for the most part, viruses we don't know what they do, you mm -hmm. know. There's been a lot of virus discovery in recent years, and so now we know that viruses are everywhere. We're all full of viruses. Everything is all full of viruses. And most of the time, we don't really know what they're doing. But in some cases, we do know that they're beneficial. And I think that's something that surprises people a lot because well, they don't think of them that way. And the other thing that we know now in, the, in recent years when so many genomes have been sequenced, so we've determined the complete nucleotide sequence of human genomes and then many other plants and animals, fungi, bacteria. And everything is full of virus sequences. <laughs> so we're probably, we're kind of made out of viruses, you know. <laughs> so with that being said, 
What could possibly be an example of a good virus? Um, I guess probably the most dramatic one is one that we found in Yellowstone National Park. So there are these plants growing in Yellowstone in the geothermal soil, so it's really hot soil. Most, most plants can't grow in hot soil. They have a, actually, plants have one of the narrowest temperature ranges of anything. Okay. They can't tolerate as high temperatures as we can tolerate even. Um, so they have, a, yeah, they have a very narrow tolerance. But in Yellowstone, you find these plants that are growing in this really hot soil, 50 degrees centigrade or so, which is, I don't know, 140. 122 degrees Fahrenheit to be exact. But you get the point here. This is really hot soil. Your prize-winning hydrangeas or pansies would perish under these conditions, but these plants thrive. So some colleagues of mine started this study, and they found a fungus growing in the plants, and the fungus has to be there. The plants can't grow without the fungus, and the fungus can't grow without the plants either in those high temperatures. But then when we started looking at the system, we found there was a virus in the fungus, okay. and you have to have the virus, the fungus, and the plant. All three have to be there to tolerate this high soil temperature. So that was kind of what got me started in being interested, more interested in beneficial viruses. So now we have this weird chicken egg situation, only now it's what came first, the plant or the virus, or actually the plant, the virus, or the bacteria. In fact, almost everything is like that. All <laughs> life is like that, like life is all symbiotic. You know, you have inside you, you have tons of bacteria, um, your microbiota, now we, we, you're hearing more and more about the microbiome. So you have a lot of bacteria. Those bacteria have viruses. Then you have also your own viruses. And you have fungi that grow in and on you that are normal part of your system. And, and so, in fact, you are only about 10% human <laughs> in terms of cell counts, right? So the number of cells, that's the estimate right now, and that probably will change over time. But right now we estimate that humans have about one in 10 cells that are actually human and all the other cells are from our bacterial or fungal. So this is not something unusual, what we saw in those plants. In any plant, you wanna go out in the field and pull up any plant, it will be colonized by fungi. So they always are, I mean, this is just very common. What we have found in extreme environments like in Yellowstone, that you'll often only find one fungus in those plants or a really dominant fungus. Whereas if you go here out into the the yards of Penn State, <laughs> you probably find quite a few fungi growing in each plant. Each plant will be harboring several fungi. And then the fungi have viruses, and the plants have viruses too. Mm -hmm. So um, it's all this big milieu. We think of individuals, there's really no such thing in biology of a true individual except in the laboratory. Mm. So we culture, we do pure cultures of you know, fungi or bacteria, but they, they don't really exist that way in nature. Other than making us realize that we're more virus than human, Dr. Rusink has just pointed out a big issue in the world of science. With all these different cells and DNA sequences, it's really hard to isolate what genes are responsible for. In other words, how do we control for all these different factors? Well, it's a reductionist approach to science, but it's easier to, you know, it's very, very hard to study. Like even in that system with just three entities, it's really hard to know who's doing what and who's contributing what. Um, so we try to, you know, pull things apart so that we can look at individual contributions. But in reality, that's not how the world works. <laughs> okay, now we know how it's done, but why is it done? What is the value of doing this research to educate the masses? I think outreach period is very important mm -hmm. because um, I think that the public is kind of off, far off base on science right now. They don't seem to understand the value of it or... Um, or how important it is in their lives. 
for example, you wouldn't, you know, without science, this cell phone wouldn't be here. You wouldn't have, most of what's in this office wouldn't be here. I mean, people don't always realize how science contributes so much to their lives. And viruses contribute a lot to their lives, too. So I think the fear of viruses is a problem. For example, lots and lots of bacteria are antibiotic resistant now, and you've probably heard about this, like overuse of antibiotics has made them resistant. Sure. Well, there are viruses that can also kill bacteria, um, and that's called phage therapy, so it's a way to use viruses to get rid of pathogenic bacteria. But people are afraid of this because of just because it's a virus, right? So they don't want to... You know, so this is one reason why getting over that sort of fear of viruses is important. And to be able to put some of these beneficial viruses to use in a practical sense requires that people accept them. Mm-hmm. So they have to get a little bit past that idea. This goes against everything we've ever learned about being sick. Put down the penicillin, pick up this virus. But this is part of the problem. People don't understand what's going on with viruses specifically, but science in general as well. And that leads to some issues. I mean, I, I do feel, I felt for a long time that scientists don't communicate with the public enough. And so that's, outreach has been a big part of my, of my scientific career. Um, I've done, I've run public lectures and science series. I have off and on done an outreach program for kids. I actually really like to do work with kids because I think about second grade, that's the ideal age for science. (laughs) Second graders are really excited about science. And so I do um, a science magic show as a clown. I do a science magic show for (laughs) kids. And uh, yeah, second grade's perfect for that because when they get a little older, then the magic doesn't work very well because they go, oh, I know how you did that. And it takes all the fun <laughs> it takes out of all it, the right? Fun away from it. But um, so, yeah, so you do a magic trick and then you show them the science behind it. That's, that's how that kind of a show works. So I, I think in general, we are just really bad at communicating with the public. Scientists are really bad at it. And not all scientists should do it right. because some of them just um, can't bring their science to the level where people can understand it. But I think if you can do that, then you really you kind of should spend time doing that. Coming up in just a second, we're going to learn why you shouldn't be afraid of some viruses after all. But we'll also learn about some new ones that should leave you trembling in your boots. Um, and that's, that is, can be very lethal. Dengue can kill you. There are some pretty nasty viruses out there. Right. Um, we've had some recent things in the news, like Ebola and and Zika, which has kind of faded again out of the news. Zika probably is, for most people, not a serious virus, but it can be under certain circumstances. But um, I I think, yeah, that there's just never, um, there's never really been enough communication about it, I guess. And yeah, so um, I, I guess the bias is, I, I like to think sometimes, well, I don't know if I like to think, but I do think that people are obsessed with bad news, you know, so mm-hmm. that's another reason why we've focused on the negative viruses. I mean, you don't turn on the news and hear great stories about wonderful things happening or anywhere. Not typically. It's all, yeah, so we're, as humans, we are obsessed with the bad news, and so we're obsessed with the bad viruses, too. But what about all these overreactions in the media? It seems like once a year there's a month-long freakout over some outbreak somewhere. And some of that, that concerns me, too. For example, the the press tends to overreact to some things and probably underreact to other things, but mm-hmm. but what concerns me about overreacting is that when we really have a serious threat, 
people are going to say, oh, it's just another Zika story or something, you know, and then people won't take it seriously. And so I, I do get a bit concerned about the sort of over-publicity that some virus outbreaks have, and I think Ebola was much more serious. But there are other viruses, for example, chikungunya, have you heard of that? Never. Yeah, you see, that's way more worrisome than Zika. Okay. Um, chikungunya is a virus that's transmitted by mosquitoes and has recently changed. The virus has evolved to be transmitted by mosquitoes that occur now in the United States. Um, and it, it causes really serious disease. I mean, it's not life-threatening necessarily, but you can, have, you can suffer the rest of your life after you have it. Um, you, wow. You know, so it causes a lot of issues with joints, joint pain. Um, it can cause like arthritis-like symptoms mm -hmm. and that they can stay with you for years. Um, so it's it's a much more. Is that at all like similar to the symptoms of like a Lyme disease type? Kind of it, yeah, it could be confused with that, and that's another you know issue about not knowing enough about these things. Right. Um, dengue is another virus that we should all be we should be very worried about dengue. Um, dengue is moving north, so dengue is mostly transmitted by tropical mosquitoes, but those mosquitoes are moving north as the climate changes. They're moving north, and there's dengue in Florida and Texas now. Um, and that's, that is, can be very lethal. Dengue can kill you. It's, um, cause, it can cause what's called hemorrhagic fever, similar to what Ebola does, um, where you, know, you just start bleeding from everything and you die. It's not transmitted as easily as Ebola. It does require the mosquito. There's no evidence, at least, that it gets transmitted from human to human. But um, there are places where there's plenty of mosquitoes. So a lot of viruses are quite specific to what insects will transmit them. So dengue is transmitted by um, uh, largely by one one species of mosquito. It's called Aedes aegypti, um, and it has a common name too. Its common name is the yellow fever mosquito, and it's named after the pretty nasty disease it can spread. It's called yellow fever because as the fever progresses, it can do liver damage, which can turn your skin and eyes a yellowish hue. Yellow fever is eradicated from the U.S. now, but that wasn't always the case. Back in 1793, an outbreak of this disease in Philadelphia killed an estimated 5,000 people between August 1st and November 9th. Though it wasn't known at the time, poor sanitary conditions and the humid summers that Philadelphia is known for could create good conditions for these Aedes aegypti mosquitoes. So th that um, dengue, is that mosquito does not occur here. It's, mm -hmm. it's a tropical and subtropical mosquito. Um, and it does, there are other species of the same genus that transmit it, but they're all tropical. So dengue is not found in this part of the country unless you go somewhere in the south and get it there and bring it back. But even if you did that, we don't have mosquitoes here that will transmit it. There are some things that are more generalist that don't really have so much specificity for a particular mosquito. But for mosquito-borne viruses, most of them do have a some level of specificity. But chikungunya, which was, um, which used to be transmitted only by Aedes aegypti as well, the same mosquito that transmits dengue, that virus now has changed. It's evolved so that it can be transmitted by another mosquito that occurs in a much broader area. So see, these things can change. That's why, yeah, for now, dengue is restricted, but um, it wouldn't, it only took a few 
changes in the sequence of chikungunya to be transmitted now by this new mosquito. So virus ecology is constantly changing. And that's why we need virus ecologists to go ahead and research them. We'll have more from Dr. Rusink in our next episode. But for now, thank you for listening to this episode of The Incredible Huck. I'm Keith Peterson. And can you do me a favor? Take those few human cells you have and rate our pod and leave us a review. It will be greatly appreciated.